Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School, the podcast where you get fresh insight from leaders at top tech companies and startups. Remember, you can learn product management in person at our 15 campuses worldwide or study with us online. Visit productschool.com to learn more about our courses. You can also hang out with the leaders from these podcasts at our hundreds of annual events and catch us at ProductCon, the world's largest PM conference that takes place every year across the United States and in London. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for the kind introduction, and thank you for putting on such an amazing event. Uh, my name is Ravi Parikh. I'm the founder of a company called Heap. We are an analytics company, and the title of this talk today is that the thing we make is useless. Um, I'll get into what I mean by that in a little bit. Um, before I do, I wanted to give a very brief mention of something called the analytics bar. So if you go out in the vendor area, there is a bar where there's a couple technical members of my team stationed. They're actually analytics industry veterans. They've been at multiple uh, analytics companies and implemented analytics before. Um, it's vendor agnostic. It's not really meant to pitch my product or our company's product. It's there if you have any questions about analytics at all. Uh, whatever your company is using, they've probably had experience with it. Um, so ask them anything. Uh, and if you do want the sales pitch, you can come see our booth separately from that. Um, so what do I mean by the title of the speech, Product Analytics is Useless? Uh, the point of this is that the tool is not the action. Uh, simply having data or simply having an analytics tool does not make your company data-driven. Uh, and the goal of my talk is to go through things that we think do make a company data-driven. Uh, I think the best way to illustrate what I mean by this concept is with a very brief analogy. So uh, a few years ago, I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. So I bought a guitar on Craigslist, and I went home, and I messed around with it a little bit, and I looked up some tutorials on YouTube. Uh, and I was very enthusiastic about it for about a couple weeks, but my interest level waned, and after four or five weeks, it kind of just sat on the shelf and collected some dust. Uh, and I never really got there. Um, as, as many of you might know, to actually become a guitar player, it's a lot more than owning a guitar. You have to have the discipline and the mindset to stay motivated and practice an hour a day for a very long period of time. You have to have a structured learning process that's more than just noodling around and watching YouTube videos. You have to think through uh, all the components of becoming a great guitar player and try those things out. You have to have someone give you structured feedback, so on and so forth. Uh, the point here is that owning a guitar is actually a very tiny portion of being a guitar player. Uh, and I actually ended up giving away that guitar to a friend who had the same thing happen to him. So 0 for 2 uh, with that particular guitar. In, in, for both of us, the guitar was useless. Um, probably for most people who buy a guitar, the guitar is useless in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, over the course of the seven years that I've been running Heap, we have worked with thousands of companies, um, many of whom have been very successful in creating great analytics programs, of which our tool is actually a very small part of that success. Uh, and then some of whom we've worked with have not had success. And again, I hope that our tool was a very small part of that lack of success. Uh, so uh, I'll go into three characteristics we've observed from companies that have done uh, a great job of becoming data-driven, of being data-driven, and using data to actually drive real business decisions and real business outcomes, not just using data to drive confirmation bias or drive nothing at all and actually just have a couple nice graphs that sit on a monitor and don't do much. Um, so the first major pillar of, I think, strong data-driven product development is that it's hypothesis-oriented rather than decision-oriented. So this is kind of vague. Uh, these terms can mean a lot of things, um, but uh, really uh, 
when, when a company is small, when a company has so few users that data is not the primary vehicle for making decisions, um, they're really just making decisions. They're saying, you know, I have an instinct for what needs to be done in our product, what changes need to be made. These are usually big changes. Um, you're still kind of searching for that product market fit. Uh, and you're shipping features uh, relatively quickly. And you're kind of maybe looking at the data a little bit after the fact to make sure nothing is super far off base. But at some point when your company is growing, there's a level of maturity you reach where this is no longer sufficient, where it's no longer enough to just make gut level decisions um, or, or even well-informed decisions. You have to be a little bit more rigorous and scientific in your thinking and be hypothesis oriented. Rather than saying, we are gonna ship feature X and hope it makes our users happy, you have to say, we are gonna test whether changing X about our product will have metric impact Y. Um, and it may seem like a subtle distinction, but there's a lot of profound uh, impacts this can have. I think this is best illustrated with uh, an anecdote. So this is from Twitter. Uh, Twitter is not a Heap customer. It's, this is just something that I found really apt for, to illustrate this concept. Um, but this is from an interview with uh, Paul Rosania, who uh, this is several years ago. So he was a PM who was in charge of a number of things, but one of the things he worked on was the newsfeed. So if you're not a Twitter user, um, you follow various people, and then when you log into Twitter, you see all the tweets from all the people that you're following. Um, and if you're following hundreds of people, this might be thousands of tweets. You can't possibly go through all of them, but you know that's, that's one of the primary ways in which you interface with Twitter. Um, and so at the time, Paul was testing out how can we make people, how can, how can we improve the newsfeed, essentially? Um, and over the course of his years there, they ran a number of experiments and made a number of changes. Um, but there's a couple that I want to focus on. So this was, call it 2015, 2016. And at the time, Twitter was growing slower than some of its competitors, companies like Instagram, companies like Snapchat, uh, Facebook. Uh, and what all of Twitter's social networking competitors had in common was that they were increasingly visual. They put a strong emphasis on photo and video content. Um, if you go into an Instagram feed, it's all photos that you're scrolling through. Um, whereas Twitter was highly text-oriented. Twitter started out as you know, famously being 140 characters, uh, and that was still the ethos of the company. And so there was a strong push internally to say, uh, why don't we do the same thing with Twitter? You know, some people are sharing text, but a lot of people are sharing photos on Twitter as well. Uh, and so why don't we emphasize those photos in the visual layout of uh, the newsfeed? So when you log into Twitter, uh, instead of seeing a block of text, why not show people photos that are automatically expanded and take up a lot of screen real estate? Um, and so in a decision-oriented framework, what they might have done is made a few different designs, uh, pushed them to their users, and then looked at the metrics. But the problem with that, especially at the scale of a company like Twitter, is that if you're pushing something out without a clear sense of what success looks like, you can always find a narrative by which something you did was successful. Like maybe engagement didn't go up, but retention did. Or maybe neither engagement nor retention went up, but when you cohorted out by certain types of users, you saw an uplift in, in engagement or retention. Or maybe ad revenue per user actually went a little bit up, even if those other metrics stayed the same or even dipped a little bit. You can always construct a narrative by which things succeeded. And people who are constructing these narratives are not being malicious. Data is actually just really difficult to reason about if you're not rigorous beforehand about what you're trying to see after the fact. Um, and so they decided to get more precise about what they were trying to do with this visual redesign. Um, they said, look, the, the people, human beings, love images, they love photos, they're visual, we're visual creatures by our nature. So if photos are actually driving the kind of behavior that we want, what we should see is that a person engages with a higher percentage of their newsfeed. So when you log into Twitter and there's a couple thousand new tweets from all the people you follow, 
you obviously can't see all of them, but how many do you actually end up seeing? What end do you scroll to before you abandon it or go onto another part of the app? That was the metric decided to optimize for. They said, if the visual newsfeed is truly better, we should see a higher percentage of the newsfeed get engaged with in total. And so they ran a series of experiments to test out that hypothesis. Um, it wasn't just you know, one redesign. They, they tested out several different versions. And what they found was actually that the opposite was true. Um, the versions of the newsfeed where they devoted more screen real estate to photos uh, actually showed lower amounts of total photos, uh, to lower, lower amounts of total tweets being engaged with at all. Um, and in fact, uh, anytime they made the average height of a tweet more, they actually saw less overall engagement because the scrollability got worse. Um, and this was something that may seem obvious after the fact, but when they went into it, that's not what they expected to see. Um, and so this might seem disappointing. They had an opportunity that they thought would lead to higher engagement, higher results, uh, and the hypotheses ended up being false, and they actually ended up not making any of those changes. But they did learn something really valuable at their users. The Twitter user base was one that valued information density of text content. Um, and so they took that same learning into future things they did as a company. No amazing results right after the fact of doing these experiments, but they ended up then saying, well, if text density is what matters for our users, um, right now you have a chronological news feed. Right now you go into Twitter, if there's a couple thousand new tweets, you'll see the end most recent tweets before you stop scrolling. And the end most recent tweets aren't necessarily the end highest information dense tweets that you actually want to see or the most relevant tweets to what you want to see. So they shifted to an algorithmic news feed that did its best to try and determine of all the new tweets that have come in since you were last here, what are the tweets you actually will want to see? Uh, and not only the tweets from your own people you're following, but people, from people who you might not be following but are similar to the people you follow. Um, and so they did move to an algorithmic newsfeed over the time. And this was actually a very controversial decision at Twitter, both internal to the company and externally. People didn't like that change. But it resonated with the, hype, with, with the learning that they had found from this and a number of other experiments uh, and ended up being successful, ultimately. Um, and it's how Twitter operates today. Um, so the point here is that there are a number of really great properties to being hypothesis-driven um, that, that are not there if you're sort of more decision-oriented. Um, one is that your activity is extremely focused. So if you say we're going to make change X in the application or in the product to drive metric outcome Y, then when you're scoping out the exact things that you're going to change, um, it's a focusing lens. You know, if, if, if a certain aspect of that redesign isn't in service of the actual outcome that you're trying to drive, then maybe it's not the right thing as that experiment. Maybe it's, maybe it's best done as part of a different experiment. And you can decouple those changes from each other. Um, the other thing is that you're constantly learning. So if you make a decision and you push that out there and it flops, uh, then you know, it's humiliating psychologically, but it also you're not psychologically primed to learn from that. The, the thing you probably learn is a risk aversion. Uh, whereas in a, in, a, in a system where you're saying, we're going to experiment, we're going to see what happens, we're going to accept the results either way, um, you are constantly learning and you're using that to inform future decisions. Um, the other thing is kind of tied to this is that it allows you to maintain an experimental mindset. Um, again, there's no psychological sunk cost in saying you made the wrong decision. You're saying, we're going to test things out and we're going to learn. And if we've learned, that's success. If we design our experiment well, rigorously, we measured it effectively, and we learned something from it, then that's a success no matter what the actual results are. So making hypotheses rather than decisions is, I think, one of the most important pillars of actually using data effectively rather than using data to drive confirmation bias. Uh, another 
major thing we see in our customers and companies in general that do a really great job of leveraging data to make great product decisions uh, or great product improvements uh, is that they are ex exploration oriented in their analytics. So what do I mean by this? I would say that uh, traditionally analytics serves kind of a documentation role within a company. So um, it documents your KPIs. It documents the things that have already happened. It says, you know, here are our 15 to 20 KPIs that we care about as a product organization or as a company, and we put them up on a monitor, and then we look at that monitor every day, and it hopefully goes up and to the right. Um, and that's great. We have those same monitors at our office at Heap, but if that is where your analytics starts and ends, it's not sufficient. Um, to actually leverage data to make strong product uh, improvements, what you need to do is to be able to ask those second and third order questions. So you look at your monitor and you see that uh, conversion rate's down or it's not where it needs to be. How can you, you need to be able to inspect that data and say, well, what's actually going on there? What are the exact things in my product or in my application that are leading to uh, that high level KPI being off track? Um, so I think this is also best illustrated with a couple anecdotes. So. Um, this is from a company called Third Love. Uh, they are a direct-to-consumer bra company um, that has been really growing quickly over the last few years since being started. Um, and they are a team that embraces exploratory analytics. So um, this is an anecdote from Amanda, who uh, is on the analytics team at Third Love. Uh, and one of the key features on Third Love's website is something called the Fit Finder. So uh, the Fit Finder is essentially, uh, it helps you find the perfect fitting bra. Uh, and it's a complex application. There's a lot of branching paths. There's a lot of things you can do within there. Um, and it can be a confusing experience if you're, if you're not exactly sure how to use it. Um, and so as a result, there's a lot of times where people will land on the Fit Finder, use part of it, or, uh, and, not, and drop off. Or maybe they'll get all the way through it, but they won't end up purchasing uh, at the end of that funnel. So they wanted to improve conversion rates. They knew that there was a lot of improvement that could be had there. But it's a complex application, and there are limitless things that they could change about it. There were uh, kind of tied to the idea of being hypothesis oriented. You have to actually have good hypotheses in the first place. If you're testing all the wrong things, um, you're gonna miss out. There's an opportunity cost in testing those things when you could be testing something more leveraged. So this is where exploratory analytics came into play. They tagged up literally everything some, someone could do within the Fit Finder. Uh, and they looked at that data to see where's the drop-off happening or what specific features are people interacting with that leads them to not convert. Uh, and from there, they kind of had essentially a rank-ordered list of what they think thought of as low-hanging fruit. Uh, and, and they just knocked down the list and they said, we're gonna test out each of these areas and try a few different hypotheses about how we can make this better or less confusing for the users of it. And over the course of a couple months, they drove a pretty significant increase in conversion rate. Um, and the important thing here was this gave them a focused lens onto what exactly was the highest priority and also told them maybe when it was time to move on to other things that might have more leverage within the rest of the product. Um, Another good example, Lending Club. This is a peer-to-peer -peer online lender. Um, they're also a customer of Heap, and they also took a very similar to a approach. So um, if you're applying for a loan on online, as you can imagine, this might be a pretty <coughs> nerve-wracking experience. You're, uh, you're applying for a several thousand dollar loan on a website. You may have never applied for a loan before, or maybe never applied online. There's a lot of form fields to fill out. There's a lot of personal information they're asking for. Um, and people drop off very regularly when going through the loan application funnel on Lending Club. Um, one thing they noticed in particular was that when people encountered form validation errors, that led to a lower conversion rate. Um, obviously, some people would find a form validation error and it would say, hey, your phone number is incorrect or something like that. They would change it and they'd move on. But some people, they found in their data, would hit a form validation error and then just stop and drop off right away. 
Um, and they were kind of confused by this result, like what exactly was going on when people were dropping off entirely after hitting a form validation error. Um, so they tagged up every form field and tried to figure out which ones were leading to this drop off. And they found that a couple fields led to more drop off than others. And they went through it themselves and generated a validation error. And they realized, hey, when some of these form fields are showing up in a certain way, um, the validation error shows up on a part of the page that you might not be scrolled to. So what they realized, with, what, what their hypothesis was, was that someone was getting to this page and they were hitting a form validation error, but they didn't actually know they were hitting a validation error because the error message appeared below the fold. So someone had filled out this entire page full of form fields, hit next, the page reloaded onto the same page they were already on, they didn't see the error, and they thought, huh, maybe this page is just broken or something like that, and then they dropped off entirely. Um, and so they made the validation error message more prominent. They put it towards the top of the screen, um, and they saw a bump in conversion rate. Again, here, the, the point is that there's hundreds of things they could have tested about making the loan application process simpler, but it was basically being able to see really detailed, really granular analytics on what was going on on each little component of the form that led them to find the actual pain point in that UX. The third big pillar, I think, of companies that do an effective job of doing data-driven product management is that they're incremental. Um, not everything is incremental. Sometimes you need to do big redesigns and big changes if things are really broken or, or if there's a big opportunity there. Um, but you have to pair that with a lot of incremental change, especially at scale. Um, so this is an anecdote from Duolingo. So Duolingo, for those who haven't used it, is a, uh, an online language learning app. There's a website and a mobile app as well. Most people use the mobile app. Um, and so a lot of their development efforts have been around optimizing the uh, experience of using the Duolingo app. Um, and this was several years ago, so they've gone through many iterations since then. But at the time, the way Duolingo worked was you would find Duolingo on the App Store, on the Play Store, you would download it, and one of the first things you would be confronted with was a sign-up screen, actually the first thing you'd be confronted with. And a lot of people dropped off there. They had uh, been willing to download the app, but they were not yet willing to actually go through an entire sign-up flow. Uh, and so they wanted to improve the sign-up conversion rate. So one of the first kind of obvious hypotheses was that if we move the sign-up flow deeper into the application, let people have some value first, then they're going to be more likely to sign up in general. And that's indeed what they saw. They let people use a little bit of the application first uh, before prompting them to sign up, and they saw their conversion rates jump almost immediately by 20%. That's a big change. But from there, they weren't done. They decided to see there's obviously many ways in which you could move the sign-up flow deeper into the flow. Uh, and see an improvement in conversion rates. You could have them have a little bit of the app, a lot of the app. Maybe you prompt them to sign up after going through just one lesson or maybe a few lessons or maybe an entire set of lessons. Um, so there's all kinds of things that they could do in terms of like how to iterate with where that sign-up screen should go. So they ran lots of experiments after this point. They moved the sign-up flow all, all throughout the application, um, and they found, uh, you know, they constantly got improvements in conversion rate through these experiments, but they also learned more and more about the psychology of someone who was signing up for an app for the first time. And eventually they iterated to something that they called soft walls. So you probably have seen this in a lot of apps since then, but it was a relatively novel concept at the time. Um, this is the idea that they're actually gonna prompt you to sign up several times, but every time they prompt you to sign up, they're not gonna force you to sign up. They're gonna say, sign up now or click later. Um, and that was actually the, the variant that ended up performing the best overall. Um, and the point here is not the clever design of the soft walls concept, though it is a great concept. The point here is that that wasn't the idea they had on day one. Um, they made a big change, they got a big result, but they kept iterating and learning more through that iteration, through that hypothesis generation, uh, and through there they brainstormed to this idea of soft walls eventually. Um, and that's what led to the sort of optimal sign-up flow for Duolingo. Um, 
I encourage you to look up this article. It's not a heap customer. It's from an interview. Um, but just Google Duolingo and, and Gina's name, and, and you might be able to find it. Um, but the idea here is that incremental experimentation uh, is a great process to hill climb to the ideal solution and also a great uh, way to learn, because you don't know what iteration 10 is going to look like when you're on iteration 1. Overall, this is th these three components, I think, uh, in general. Basically, these are processes cribbed from the scientific method. Uh, if, if these are attributes that you think your product team has, then adopting an analytic solution is seamless. Um, but if you're still kind of in a decision-oriented framework, if you're still kind of driving things based on gut, if you're still making coarse grain decisions, that's okay. That's a stage that every product team goes through. But analytics is probably not the top of your list of concerns. There's a certain level of maturity you need to get to before analytics can actually drive real business outcomes for a team. So that's all I have for you today. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Product Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.